almost like a spiritual pediatrician. He's reminding the young Colossian Christians what his ministry to them was like over the years. This is what I did for you, and this is how you responded. And he's doing this in order to reassure them, look how much you've grown. Okay, you, you were down here in the beginning, but, but look at this bump up. Uh, look at how, how you have grown. I'm so encouraged and I'm, and I'm praying for you, he says. You know, you, you've been eating well, so to speak. You know, oatmeal and not just Fruit Loops, right? You've been doing the things you're supposed to be doing, growing in Christ. And praise God for your growth. And what emerges then from this passage is sort of a, 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 an outline of different marks, four marks, in fact, of a growing spiritual body. As Paul talks to the church, which he calls the body of Christ, what are the four marks that emerge from this passage as he talks about how they are growing? Four marks, this is what we're going to look at, joyful suffering. Number one, joyful suffering. Number two, servant leadership. Number three, holy surprise. And number four, fighting faith. Let's look at all four of these. Number one, joyful suffering. If you look at verse 24, right from the top, he writes, Now I rejoice. What? I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. The apostle tells the Colossians that he's had to suffer greatly in order to bring the gospel to them in his love for them. So, right away, we have this important reminder. Love is hard. Don't forget, Paul is in prison writing these words. In prison for bringing the good news of Jesus to the people in the Mediterranean world. He is suffering literally in his flesh to say nothing of his mind and his heart. So he knows what he's talking about here, and he's reminding them that love is hard. Love is, you know, costly. Our culture tells us that a, a thing is good or a thing is right only if it, if it feels good, only if it makes you happy. Well, the Bible tells us a different story about how we relate to pain and about the realities of love. In other words, don't be surprised, beloved, when it hurts to put another person's needs in front of your own. Don't be surprised when caring for someone in the manner that Jesus has cared for you might actually leave you feeling empty or in pain, or lacking. Some of you today are bearing the cost of, of love daily, and you feel it. Oh, beloved, let this passage just 
urge you on. Keep loving with sacrificial, suffering love. And later in the passage, Paul will say that he continues to labor, working with the energy that Christ works in him. So often loving in a costly way, it depletes us. Where do we find the energy to get back up and love again? Well, it's Jesus, his love, his indomitable commitment always to put you first in the way that he died for you, lay down his life for you, love for you that you can't find anywhere else, forgiving your sins, making you righteous in his sight. And maybe you're wondering to yourself, this, this suffering, this pain, is it, is it worth it? Because it's a lot. Look again at verse 24. There Paul says, I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. So Paul is saying that in his suffering, his suffering love, he's actually filling up or meeting or fulfilling something that's presently lacking in the the sufferings of Christ. Well, what does that mean? What's lacking is, isn't anything related to the saving power of Christ's suffering and death? Paul, numerous times already in this chapter, has talked about the way in which Christ, by dying, has completely done everything necessary to purchase the forgiveness of all of your sins, to purchase your right to be in the family of God, for you to have access into the presence of God. That work is finished. So that's not what's lacking. But what's lacking is that very suffering of Christ, his death, his atonement, and its present visibility and comprehensibility to people in Colossae who were living 30 years after Jesus had departed and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem where he, was di- where he died. They weren't there personally to see it. So Paul says Christ has designed the church so that in our suffering flesh, we might see our suffering Christ. And that's like, what? Let me break it down for you a little bit more. The other day I saw a video of a football game, um, an NFL game, and a player scored a touchdown, and immediately after, he started celebrating doing what's called the gritty. Now, I don't know if you know the gritty, if you're up on this sort of thing, but this is a little celebration dance that a lot of athletes are doing nowadays where you're dancing, shuffling your feet, and waving your arms, and, you know, and so, hold on, I'm getting there. And so so I told my son, who has been telling me about the gritty and his friends and all this sort of thing, I said, look, hey, I saw this video. I saw this video. And you didn't see, but I saw it earlier when you were at school. I saw this video of a dude that scored a touchdown and then did the gritty. And then I started doing for him, you know, what was... No, no, no. Stay, stay, stay. You got to stay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you're laughing. And my son was angry at me. He said, that's not, he said, that's not it. You know, shaking his head. 
And I thought it was pretty good, but he was, he was disapproving. He said, Dad, you're not doing it right. And of course he did it and he did it right, right? But listen, I was showing him a personal demonstration of something I had seen because he wasn't there. He didn't see it personally. So I gave him a, a reenactment, as it were. I was acting out what I wanted him to see of the reality of this fine little dance I saw in a video so that it would feel to my son that he had seen it too. Listen, Jesus, by his mysterious wisdom, has made it so in the church that we would suffer in part so that we, through our sufferings, would be able to see the sufferings of Christ as if we ourselves were there at the foot of the cross. We are acting out, as it were, giving visible displays, demonstrations, as it were, of what Christ did, dying for our sins, dying in love. You see, what Paul is saying is that your sufferings for other people in love, in the name of Christ, have immense value. That you are actually giving some presentation, some visibility of how much Christ loves you in his suffering love, in the way that you love with suffering love also. Putting broken flesh on otherwise invisible gospel realities. Just like he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we always carry around in our body the death of Christ. We carry in our body the death of Christ so that his life may be revealed in our body. My pain is a messenger in love to the world around me. That there is a Christ who suffered and died for all. And so your suffering has meaning. It's not in vain. Your pain and love is costly, but it's not in vain. And Paul says, I, I, I see this. I know this. I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. I make his afflictions visible through my afflictions. I'm communicating not only through my words, but through my deeds, and not only through my good deeds, but my painful dying deeds. And he says, because I know this, I rejoice. I rejoice in the way that Christ has called me to suffer. Chew on that, beloved. Joyful suffering. Here's a second characteristic of a growing body that we find in this passage. Second characteristic, servant leaders. Servant leaders. Listen to how Paul talks about his role as an apostle in verse 25. He says, I have become it, the church's servant, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. He calls himself a servant. A servant. I mean, this vocabulary is so common in Christian circles that you can almost forget how strange and powerful this language really is. A servant 
in ancient times was someone who waited on tables or who washed feet. It, a, a servant was the custodial staff. Uh, it was a domestic worker in a household. A servant was someone who, in the eyes of the world, had no privilege, power, and prestige, and existed not to lift oneself up, but rather to lift up others. He calls himself a servant. He also says he leads because of the commission God gave me, which means he was sent by someone else. So he didn't just bear his own authority, look at me, the big shot. No, he was sent and his authority therefore comes from someone else, a higher up. I'm not the higher up. There's another higher up, namely God above me. But not only so, this word commission can also be translated stewardship, a word that was used for property managers. In other words, people that took care of things that didn't belong to them, but rather belonged to others. In other words, Paul is saying, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not the boss here. I, I'm serving someone else. I'm, I'm not taking care of this church because it belongs to me. It belongs to Jesus. So it's not about me. You see, in every word in this one sentence, Paul is deferring authority, deferring power, deferring glory and recognition again and again and again. So it's no surprise that Paul's labor is marked with a servant's and a steward's diligence. He doesn't say, I'm kicking back in the king's chamber being fed grapes. Rather, he says... Verse 1 of chapter 2, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you. And again in chapter 1, verse 29, I, I strenuously contend. He, he's not just teaching the bare minimum as he teaches, but according to verse 28, he's teaching, he's proclaiming, he's admonishing, he's doing it all again and again because he's a servant. Because servants spend themselves on others pour out themselves upon others. And this, Paul says, is what leadership should look like. Sadly, this sort of vision of leadership, servant leadership, sadly quite different than what we often find in churches today and what is the temptation of leaders in every church every day. Leaders that become accountable to no one but themselves. Leaders that labor primarily to prop up their own status within an institution or a community. Churches are sometimes the most personality-driven institutions in America. Caitlin Beatty, an author, recently wrote a book about this topic called Celebrities for Jesus, How Personas, Platforms, and Prophets Are Hurting the Church. And by celebrities, she's talking about pastors and ministry leaders. The temptation is very great, always great, to vie for power and recognition and control. Paul shows us a different way, a better way. And he's just using the same language 
that's found all throughout Scripture to describe the character of Jesus, isn't he? The prophet Isaiah called the coming Messiah the suffering servant. Jesus himself in Matthew 20 describes his role like this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant leadership. Here is a call for leaders who use their power and authority not to deny that they have power and authority, but rather to use their power and authority to lift up and to love other people, not themselves. John Stott was one of the most influential Christian ministers and authors in the 20th century, and years ago he came to speak at the seminary where I attended, and after giving his talk, a couple of sermons, lectures, as one of the brightest minds and most humble leaders, uh, really, in the church, uh, both here and uh, in the UK. But he spoke, and then afterwards, there was a little bit of a, of a Q&A time when a, a student, probably a first-year seminarian as these things go, stood up and boldly challenged John Stott on some of the things that he had taught. said, I think you're wrong, and this is why. I mean, the audacity of this squirt. <laughs> it it might have been me, you know? It could have been. It could have been. And to everyone's amazement, not only did John Stott not take the advantage to put him in his place, right? Nor did he even ignore the question or the comment, but just simply and quietly he said, I'll think about that. I'll think about that. And the buzz across the campus after that weekend conference was primarily Stott's response to that question. Because it stood out as so unusual. Sure, the content of his lectures and his preaching was wonderful. But here was a different kind of man that we could barely imagine being. Being able to respond with such humility, with such servant likeness you see a servant leader stewards not just what they do but also their words how they respond words that are used to encourage and to bless others words that are used not to humiliate another person even when you have opportunity to do so a servant is someone who who gives who 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 stays out of view when it's not necessary to be in view who stays late to clean up who's okay when a decision doesn't go their way, whose primary disposition towards the community is not, this is what I think needs to get done, but how can I help? Servant leadership as a mark, and a, a crucial ingredient, in fact, of a growing body. And of course, this doesn't only apply to formal leadership, but peer leadership as well in your small groups, in your relationships, how you dispose yourselves towards others. Because I know, maybe there's someone here that's saying, look, okay, this doesn't really apply to me. I don't want to be famous, not in the world, and not, I don't want to be famous, uh, but I just want everyone in my small group to know I make the best brownies. 
right? That little impulse for recognition, it can start like a seed. It can start small, and you don't even realize how much it can spread across the entirety of your soul. So I want to encourage you, pray for your leaders, the leaders of this church, that we would be instilled with this kind of posture of a servant as we're filled with the spirit of our servant Christ. Pray for your leaders and pray for your own hearts, our own hearts, because here's the thing. We get the leaders we want. And what this puts on us is this question, uh, what kind of leaders am I actually seeking to follow? What kind of leaders do I think are worth following? Uh, That's important in your heart as well. Right now, as we've mentioned recently, we're in a season of nominating uh, new ordained and commissioned leaders in our church, elders and shepherdesses, deacons and and deaconesses, and this is for our covenanted members, of course, but I think the spirit of it applies to everyone. We want to encourage you to consider who might be called by Christ to be a leader in this church. Please do participate in that process if you are a member. The truth is we generally tend to have very low participation, doesn't strike at the legitimacy of the process in any sort of way, but it would be so much more encouraging and, in fact, formative to the community if all members were participating, at least praying and engaging, let alone submitting an actual nomination ballot, of course. But this is the point here. Who are you looking for? What kind of leader? Paul, in this passage, the scriptures call us to look for servant leaders. People that just lay it all down, who live on their knees, as it were, who give and sacrifice, who aren't looking for recognition, uh, who, who are who they are behind closed doors and in front of the curtain. Integrity, humility, repentance, and genuine faith in our suffering servant. Pray for these kinds of leaders. Lord, raise up these kinds of of leaders, servant leaders. A growing body is marked by joyful suffering, by servant leaders, and thirdly, by holy surprise. Holy surprise. Listen to verse 27. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul kind of reviews again and again what what, what the message, the story that's being built into the life of the community. And he sums it all up in saying of all that's being proclaimed and taught and admonished and lived out, this is what it boils down to. Christ in you, brothers and sisters. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which simply means this, the wild promise of the Christian gospel is that God, yes, forgives you of your sins. But then he draws even nearer still. He reconciles you to himself in relationship. He brings you into his family. And then he draws you even nearer still. Beloved, God himself makes his home 
within you. Christ in you, what theologians call the indwelling spirit of Christ. It's something that blows our minds. We don't understand exactly how it works if you're looking for an owner's manual kind of a thing. But the idea is that God wants to relate to you with such intimacy and reality that he doesn't simply connect with you from a distance. He actually enters into your life, fills you to your fingertips, as it were, and makes his home within you. It's an amazing promise, an amazing joy. Not long ago, I was on a a trip on a plane and got to watch a movie called 42. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a a movie that was made several years ago uh, about the life and the story of Jackie Robinson, of course, the first African-American to play baseball in the major leagues. And there was one very poignant uh, moving scene in the story when Jackie, of course, had begun to play in the major leagues and was facing uh, just hardships of all kind from prejudiced members, not only of his own team, but especially from the opposing teams. There was one scene when he was being taunted while on the base path, base path in the middle of the game, taunted by a player from the other team. Uh, hostile, uh, terrible, racist remarks that were being thrown his way, and at that moment, Pee-wee Reese came near to him. Pee-wee Reese, the star shortstop of the Brooklyn Dodgers, a white teammate, stood next to him, knowing exactly what he was doing and why it needed to be done, stood next to him and put his arm around Jackie for the whole stadium to see. Jackie's wife, Rachel Robinson, would later say in an interview that moment, it came as such a relief to Jackie that a teammate and the captain of the team would go out of his way in such a public fashion to express friendship. Some of us approach the Christian faith hoping that maybe, just maybe, God would be the sort of God who even despite knowing all of your sins, all of your inconsistencies and hypocrisies, all of the ways that you fail to love your neighbor, all the ways that you harbor selfish and self-indulgent thoughts in your heart, that this God might actually be so forgiving and kind and gracious and loving that he might possibly, maybe, stand next to you and put his arm around you even in public. And here's the thing. The good news of God's grace is that that's exactly what he does. We're even told that Jesus is not embarrassed, not ashamed of you, not ashamed to be called your brother, not ashamed to put his arm around you and to be identified with you in public, even when you're ashamed of him. That's amazing. But this is amazing even more still. That Jesus doesn't find it enough simply to stand next to you with his arm around you. He wants more. He lives in you, not just beside you. He fills you, doesn't just stand off next to you. He actually makes his address 
your very own soul. And this is amazing because it means then you can know that you are not discarded even when you feel the whole world has discarded you. Christ lives in you. And you can know that you're not alone or forgotten even when you either feel alone or when literally other people in your life have in fact forgotten you. No, Christ lives in you. He hasn't forgotten where he's at. And you can know that you're not powerless even when you feel weak, weak, weak because you actually can know and feel assured that Christ isn't giving you power just from on high but from within because he lives within you and the one who lives in you is none other than the very one who raised Christ from the dead, the Holy Spirit himself. You have power even in your weakest moment. Christ lives in you. And this is precisely what Paul describes as a mystery. A mystery that's now been revealed. Verse 26, I present to you the word of Christ in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. What's a mystery? This is a mystery because, Paul says, and the scriptures say, it was hidden. We didn't see that this is what God had in his plan, but it's now been revealed. It's now been opened up. The secret has, is out now. It's been disclosed. A mystery is something that surprises us. And isn't this a surprise? No one could dare imagine, no one can dare believe. That God would want to draw so near to his people that we could proclaim, here is the gospel promise. Not God at an arm's length loving you. God himself in you. The hope of glory. God forgives you, but there's more. More mystery, more surprise. What is it? God befriends you. No, 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 but there's more. God has made his home in you. But friends, there's one more level of surprise. You might have noticed it here in verse 27 when Paul says this. God has chosen to make known... Among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of this mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of mysteries is not just Christ has loved us so, but Christ has loved every single one of us without distinction based on ethnicity and culture. Paul says, here's the mystery. Here's something that's going to shock you. Christ loves you this much that Christ lives in you. And then he says, and here's a surprise even further still. Christ loves you, Gentile Colossians, you who did not know Christ all throughout the story of the Old Testament. But now God has done a big movement of breaking through barriers and is now extending this very same promise and love just like he did in the Jewish community in the Old Testament. Now he's doing all throughout the Mediterranean world through Gentile cultures, non-Jewish cultures, and all kinds of people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the greatest surprise, Paul says. The fullness of the mystery that Jesus did this not just with your tribesmen and kinsmen, just with people just like you, but rather God extends his love even to those who are very much unlike you. And you say, well, what's the surprise here? The surprise is this is because we simply don't realize how unnatural and unusual it is to actually work hard to break down barriers across culture, ethnicity, and race. The surprise is that God actually 
actually calls us into this work that is impossible by human ingenuity and human wisdom. That, that, that the natural state of being based on our sinful, selfish hearts is just to remain in homogenous settings and just to be with people just like ourselves. That's what's normal. What's surprising is to be called out of that into a community representing a mix of different people, as Paul is pointing out, that God has done by his grace. Pastor Chris Hutchinson, he's a pastor out in Blacksburg, Virginia, recently said these very helpful lines. I wanted to share it with you. Welcoming Gentiles into the church came so unnaturally to Jewish believers that it took tongues of fire at Pentecost, supernatural visions throughout the New Testament, an ecumenical council in Acts 15 making big decisions, and about a dozen letters for the church to figure it out. Reconciliation and communion is hard work, but where grace reigns, walls fall. So friends, as we continue to grow as a church in our cross-cultural community vision, building relationships across lines, being deliberate and intentional in who you befriend, in the stories that you invite into your lives, in the, the sins of prejudice that we repent of and confess, in the ways that we continue to grow in wisdom and in healing, don't you dare forget how out of this world this vision actually is. That it's a surprise that God would bring us together so. That it's a stunning thing when it actually comes into being. And I say this including for those of you that are on board with the vision but are feeling impatient to see its manifestation. It's hard. And it takes nothing less than the supernatural work of the resurrected Christ to see it happen. So let's be surprised. And let's see God at work in our midst. Fourthly and lastly, we'll close with this. Mark's characteristics of a growing body, joyful suffering, servant leadership, holy surprise. Lastly, fighting faith. Fighting faith. Paul is super clear that his goal is the spiritual maturity of the Christians. Of the Colossians. We see this explicitly in verse 28. He, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Now, why? What's the point of all his teaching, all his laboring? Why, Paul? So that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Do you share that goal? Maturity. Some of us have been all too content to remain for a long time in spiritual infancy. Just drinking spiritual milk and not actually moving to spiritual meat. Or remaining for a long time in, in spiritual toddlerhood, normalizing your spiritual tantrums. Do you long for, do you labor towards greater spiritual maturity, which is God's will for you in Christ? And do you know that it's a struggle to get there? It takes a fight. It doesn't just happen automatically. And we already pointed out how Paul uses the language of strenuously contending. 
people in the second half of chapter 2, verse 5, he also says, I, I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith is. Disciplined. Firm. I mean, these are words that were actually taken from military life in the Greco-Roman world. And let's be honest, these aren't often words that we use to describe our life in Christ. Disciplined. Firm. I mean, we fight for firmer abs, a firmer core. Do you fight? Will you fight for firmer faith? So how do you get there? This is what Paul says. Number one, rigorous learning in the word. In verse 28, he says, He's the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul is pointing us to rigorous instruction, teaching, proclaiming the word in all of its fullness. He talks about the treasures of Christ that are disposed towards us. Will you, will you grab a hold of the treasure that's found in God's word for you? This is how you, you get your firm abs, as it were. This is how you exercise your faith so as to be brought into greater maturity. And just as one simple practical suggestion to you, I, I want to say, will you, in the coming weeks, read a book on a topic related to the life of faith. A, a, a Christian book that is one that unpacks God's word and that you devote yourself to, to just careful reading and study as a normal discipline and practice part of your growing in your faith. Now, you might have a book that you've had on the table and you haven't gone back to it. Go back to it. Or, or maybe it's something that you're reading in a small group that you're a part of. Go, go to that as well. And I know our life groups and our different groups are engaging God's word in different ways. But I'm, I'm, I'm calling you to one more step of reading and study and meditation. If you don't have a book, can I recommend this one, a good one? Uh, the men's Bible study did this last spring, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. We have bunches of copies in our church office. If you let us know, I will bring you a copy for free next Sunday. Let us know, and we would love to fortify you with another tool or resource to grow in rigorous learning in the Word. But secondly, rigorous relationships in community are also needed. Listen to verse 2 in chapter 2. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now look, second half, we're going to work backwards. You have the full riches of complete understanding, a more mature understanding of Christ and the mystery of Christ. Well, how do you get that? Paul says, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. How did he get there to that fruit, to that result. What's on the left side, in other words, of that sentence? Encouraged in heart and united in love. In other words, one of the chief ways in which you will grow into maturity of faith, a firmer faith, is by being deeply invested, not just attending, not just participating, invested in a community that is committed to encouraging one another and being united or rather knitted in heart, which is another way you can translate that phrase, being knitted in heart together. Encouragement 
and a unity that's like a binding and weaving your lives and your faith and your stories together over time is a crucial way in which you will find maturity. You cannot be mature in Christ alone. You cannot get there. doesn't matter how many of these you try to read. doesn't matter how much study you do on your own. You need rigorous relationships in community, a place where encouragement is doled out on a regular basis. You can start even today, right after service, let alone in your life groups this week, where you're just the person that's going around telling people, hey, you're doing a great job, or you mean a lot to me, or I'm so thankful for you, or can I tell you how your gifts and your service impacted me, or how can I pray for you, or I'm so glad you're here. The ways that you're encouraging and encouraging and knitting your lives together. Friends, it's, it's not rocket science, but it does take persistence to grow in this way, uh, uh, building a thick community, not a cheap community, but a thick kind of relationship in which we are rigorously engaging our faith and one another's lives. This is what Paul says we need, a fighting faith. A fighting faith. And that's what results in growth. Friends, I just want to close by reminding you again that the great hope of all of this is that our growth is not turned by the turbine or the engine of your own desire, your own commitment, your own will. But Paul's already said it. What is it that enables us to grow in all these ways? Discovering the the, the strange joy of suffering, learning how to be a, a leader that lays it all down strangely, right? Becoming a person that that is surprised more and more by the gospel. You don't take it for granted. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow! And Christ across the community in every tribe, tongue, and nation. Wow! And a fighting faith. Where does this come from? Knowing and believing. Knowing and believing that you have Christ in you, working in you. The life of Christ, the resurrected Christ, dwelling within you, giving you power from within, refueling your faith, loving you to the end, carrying you on, sanctifying you, making more, you more like Jesus, making this community more like Jesus, making this more and more into the beautiful temple of Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You want to grow. Let's grow together in this way. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask that you would be present with us, fully present in a way that sets our eyes upon you. God, we need your help. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for just these little markers, this growth chart, as it were, of understanding how it is that we can press on and fuel on. Jesus, receive glory from us. Thank you. Thank you for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.